Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's the Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. My next guest tonight is the best-selling author of Between the World and Me, and we were eight years in power. Please welcome back to the Late Show, Tanahasi Coast. Welcome back. It's nice to see you again. Thanks for having me, Brian. Now, I've interviewed you two or three times before. Yes. And, um, of course, the thing I've interviewed you before are your, your works of journalism and your essays, like uh, your, your book, um, Between the World and Me, which won the National Book Award. Those are essays in journalism. Now you've written your first uh, piece of fiction, a novel, um, The Water Dancer, which is it's a beautiful book. And as I was talking to you backstage, I'm, this is my my reader's copy back here. I'm about that far into it, so please don't tell me how all the beauty and sadness ends. No spoilers. But no, no, spo- spoilers, no spoilers, please. Tonight. No spoilers, please. Yeah. But why did you decide to write fiction? What, can you, what story can you tell in fiction that you can't? Or what power does that have that nonfiction doesn't? Yeah, so uh, the short answer is my, my editor and my agent were like, you should try fiction, so I did. <laughs> <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually true. I'm not wow. joking. Yeah, that was, so I've, I've written a book uh, in 2000 on my first book, The Beautiful Struggle, and when both of them were done, they thought that I could try this, and it took 10 years to actually get it done. So this is actually older than Between the World and Me, Case for Reparations, We Waited, about all this of that. This is 10 years old. This is 10 years old. This is the, this is the older work, and, and it took me 10 years to really get it right. Um, but, I, you know, you, you, you hint at something I think very, very important, and that is what are the things that can be gotten across in fiction that maybe can't be in nonfiction. And, and this is just, <clears throat> for me, one of the things I got during my time, you know, working at, at The Atlantic, where I, I was able to do some of, you know, some of the most fulfilling work of, of, of my career, was that you could state verifiable facts to people and they would just bounce right off. Mm-hmm. So in my case, you know, the one I think about all the time is I would say, you know, the Civil War was fought, you know, over slavery. And people would just say, no, it's not. And you would go and dig up the documents of the people who started the Civil War where they said, we're starting this war because of slavery. And they would say, where did you get that? Who actually said that? Was that person? They were always, there was always a way out. You know, even if, you know, uh, you had the math, one plus one somehow always equaled three. And what I realized that what they were actually resisting was not the facts, but the implication of the facts. That if they accepted that the Civil War, for instance, was about slavery, that meant they had to look at Robert E. Lee different, who they had revered. That meant that they had to look at the Dukes of Hazzard different. That meant that you know, all of these sort of myths that had existed within the society had, would, would come under question. And so it wasn't you know, an actual factual argument. In fact, it was an argument of myth. And one of the things I realized is the way you get to that is through storytelling. Just very quickly to tell the people out there, 
Um, tell them just the, the basic outlines without giving away any of the surprises. And there are beautiful and, and amazing sort of magical realist surprises in here. So it, it's, it's the story of, of, of an enslaved uh, black man, Hiram Walker, uh, who is gifted with this preternatural memory, you know, photographic memory, can, you know, remember all sorts of details, except those things that are most intimate to him, in this case, his mother. Uh, he is the child of an enslaved woman and uh, a, a white man who is the enslaver and, and the master of the plantation who has sold off, of, sold off his mother. And Hiram is in this search, like, you know, all enslaved people of the period, for freedom. Um, and the book charts his journey and his coming to understand that that search is actually connected to many more things and many more people than he thought, and to his memory or lack thereof. And you say you worked on this for, for 10 years. Tell me about the research that goes into this, because I grew up in, in the South. I grew up in Charleston, yeah. South Carolina, and there are aspects of... Did you of, go to plantations? What? Did you visit plantations? Was that a thing you did? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. We would go to uh, Boone Hall and uh, Middleton and uh, Drayton. Yeah, it was a, it was a field trip kind of thing. Did they talk about slaves? Yeah, but there weren't, like, examples. It wasn't... When I was a child, there wasn't much... Um, wasn't much pointing at it. Got it was it. mostly like architecture and gardens yes, and things yes. like that. They didn't yes. talk much about who ground the corn or why right. the gardens were so fancy right. and who did all that landscaping. Right. It was mostly just look at this sort of cultural artifact mm -hmm. that is left over. Mm -hmm. And a lot of talk about how the Yankees burned it down. Right, <laughs> right, right. So I, I, I did that. I, I went to a, a number of, of plantations. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, for, uh, in the course of research, I went to the Whitney Plantation uh, in New Orleans. I went to Monticello in Virginia. I went to Montpelier. I went to Shirley Plantation. Uh, in, in, in Virginia just to get, you know, some sense of how folks would have lived. And, and what's happening at a lot of those plantations, not, not all of them, is they are beginning to reincorporate uh, enslavement and acknowledge the fact that all of those resources and all those riches actually, you know, were derived from the fact that there were people there who, who, who were property. Um, in many ways, you know, the reason why I asked you that question is because that, that gets back to the whole thing I was talking about with myth. Once you acknowledge that the war was about slavery, that slavery was a big deal, that plantation looks really, really different. Mm -hmm. And the people feel kind of different about the architecture. And they have to talk about the architecture a little differently. In fact, they might even wonder whether they want to talk about the architecture at all, you know, mm -hmm. at that point. You know, when I went to Monticello for the last time, or the last time I went there, um, I heard something which is obvious, but I hadn't actually heard expressed this way. They were only referring to the enslaved people there, not the slaves. Not the, the slaves, yes. And yes. it was an interesting, a very important change of attitude or tone toward these people because slavery is an, slave is an identity. Yes. An enslaved person right. is what happened to this person who has their own singular identity. Right. You call, or rather the high calls the people in here for, for maybe 100 pages, we don't hear the word slave. No, you don't. You just hear the yeah. word tasked. Yeah. And I actually... Where does that term come from? And even the fact that slave is in there is a mistake. I tried to get all of that. If, like, if I had done this right, slave would never have appeared in there at all. I'm about 250 pages in. It only happens three times Yeah, so I messed far. up. My bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the reason why, in my mind, um, one of the things you, you have to do as a, as a fiction writer is um, you, you can't write a novel about slavery, even when you're writing about slavery, it has to be your slavery, it has to be your picture of it, it has to be your particular thing, because you say the word slavery and images automatically come to mind, whether you want to focus on those or not, for instance, you know, whips, chains, rape, all of that, you know, immediately is what conjured up, is conjured up. But I was actually, and this is, you know, a big theme in the novel, very interested in how enslavement destroyed families. 
family separation is family a huge separation. part of yeah, this. Yes, a huge theme. And were you writing? Theme. Was that was that sort of the focus of that in this, or through what it's doing to High and what it's psychologically doing to all these people who are enslaved? Was that a theme in here before our present national um, yeah. focus and our own heartbreak in certain ways about the family separation going on the border? It was. It was. It was. It's one of the oldest. One of the first things I, I keyed on when I was, you know, again doing that research and reading some of the narratives. Uh, what people mourned about the most was, you know, a son being sold off, a daughter being sold, wife, husband. That's, what, you know, where you saw some of the most heartbreaking stuff. And I think the fact that it's resonant with the politics right now is more about the fact that when you want to uh, be cruel to, you know, other, other people as a policy, uh, family is often the place w where that happens. It's not uncommon, even if, you know, uh, some of the earliest examples originate with black people. Uh, we have to take a little bit of a break, but we're right back with more Ta-Nehisi Coates, everybody. We are here with the author of the new novel, The Water Dancer, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, one of the things that uh, is hinted at for a long time in the novel is a special ability mm -hmm. that Hiram has, mm -hmm. which uh, I don't think I'm giving anything away when I say it is it, it's a supernatural ability. Yes. And has any of your work writing for Marvel influenced <laughs> your, or, or, or has, or are there commonalities between yeah. your work on Black Panther yeah. and yeah. your work on this novel? Because yeah. people may not know that you've also written for Marvel for the Black yeah. Panther storyline. So, so it's two things. Yes, it's, it, it's not the writing so much as the reading of comic books, which is, you know, I started at a very young age. But I think the thing, I, the thing is, A, the supernatural is present in slave narratives very, very often. It's present in, you know, Frederick Douglass. It's present in WPA narratives. So it was already there. But, and I have something for you on this. You're a D&D &D guy, aren't you? Yeah. So I'm a D&D &D guy, too. Yes. Dungeons so. and Dragons, for those of you who don't know. So, I mean, yeah. it was, it, you know... I played, like, my first game of Dungeons & Dragons with my older brother when I was, like, seven years old. Sure. So this is, like, in my bones. And so when I went to write something, you know what I mean? I had all of that in me already. So uh -huh. at, even though it was in the slave narratives, it was the thing that I would be automatically already attracted to. Um, well, uh, thank you for the book. Thank you for being here. Um, don't tell me how it ends. Um, um, it's nice to see you again. Thank, thank you. you thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest tonight is the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter who created the 1619 Project. Please welcome to The Late Show, Nicole Hannah-Jones. to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Now, three years ago, uh, you created the 1619 Project, originally with a specialist of the New York Times magazine. And now, it's a, it's a children's book, it's a podcast series, uh, an upcoming docu-series, it's a dessert topping, and <laughs> it's now available as a book, The 1619 Project, a new origin story. Now... Let's just start, let's start with basics for a second. Some of the people watching right now may not be aware of what that date, 1619, what its significance is. There are a lot of dates out there we have in our head. What does it mean? 
Yeah, so 1619 is the year that the first Africans were sold into the British colony of Virginia. So we really mark that as the beginning of American slavery. And of course, what the 1619 Project argues is that since slavery is one of the oldest institutions in uh, the land that would become the United States, that is foundational to so much of the society we have today. So literally, literally, what was the name of the ship? The White Lion. The White Lion pulled into what was then the Jamestown colony in the, in, in the, in the British colonies. And how many uh, Africans do we know? Do we know how many were, were, were sold into bondage there? Yes, yeah, so what we know from the record is they, they said 20 and odd. So between 20 and 30, they were from Angola. Um, and uh, they were originally on a Portuguese ship that was bound for Mexico, stolen by some English pirates, and they traded these human beings for victuals, so for uh, provisions. Now, when did you first... When did you, when did you first learn of this? When did you first become interested in this? So I first came across the date, 1619, when I was 15 years old, which was, you know, two or three years ago. Uh, <laughs> Um, and I was a, a high school student, and I, I had a one-semester black studies elective taught by a great educator named Mr. Dial. Mm -hmm. And um, nerdy Nicole became really obsessed with learning this history, and I would ask Mr. Dial to give me books to read outside of class. And one of the books he gave me was a book called Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett. And about 30 pages in uh, was when I first read about uh, the white line in 1619. And uh, as a 15-year-old, no one had ever taught us that date. Of course, every American child learns about the Mayflower in 1620, mm -hmm. but 1619 and the white line had been completely erased from the national narrative. Um, and so as a, as a black girl, uh, knowing that African people had been here longer than the people who uh, disembarked from the Mayflower was very powerful to me. So I've thought about it ever since then. I, I, this is a, a question that just occurs to me right now. So those 20 odd, so between 20 and 30 enslaved Angolans who came over uh, in 1619, in the early colonies, did any were there any Africans who came or were brought to the United States not as enslaved people, or were they all come as enslaved people? In the early colonies, uh, people were coming uh, as enslaved workers, but you did start to have, um, after the kind of middle 1600s, there were some kind of free or indentured laborers who were coming from Europe, a very small number. And what's interesting about it is, you know, we hadn't quite, quite created what slavery would look like in the United States. So, of course, we create laws to, uh, to deal with things that are already happening. Yeah. And so the status of them was not what we, what we would come to know as chattel slavery. So they could become free, they could own property. It wasn't a slavery that was inherited or lifelong. But um, within 30 years of them landing, we would begin to create that sort of lifelong slavery. So in, in some ways, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the British in, in their colonies in the United States, what would become the United States, um, created a new form of slavery. There had been a long history of slavery in the world, but this was a race-based slavery that hadn't existed before. That's right. So uh, up until, really, the institution of chattel slavery, uh, people became slaves um, sometimes because of war or because of debt, so it was conditional. But um, what was created by the European powers during the transatlantic slave trade was a, a race-based slavery, so if you were African, you were enslavable, and it was a slavery that was inherited, so mm -hmm. prior to that, when you had children, your children weren't born into slavery and other forms of slavery, mm -hmm. but, of course, here... Every person who was enslaved, um, every woman who was enslaved would give birth to an enslaved child. Um, and it was a lifelong slavery, so you would never have a chance of becoming free. It seems like that's an important thing to know about your country. And yet, 14 states, 14 states of the United States have attempted to ban 
or banned the 1619 project from being taught in public schools. What's your theory on why there has been such a strong backlash in some parts of the country? I think we are in, uh, obviously, a deeply polarized society and that conservatives have really understood that the oldest divide in America is the race is the race divide. And so uh, if you want to stoke division, if you want to win politically, um, scaring people into thinking that their children are learning a history that's teaching them that they're the oppressor or that you can't have heroes if they're white, I think it's been a very uh, effective propaganda campaign. But I, I think it should go without saying that regardless of how anyone feels about the 1619 Project, and trust me, most of the people trying to ban it have never read it, it's very clear, um, <laughs> that... Uh, no matter how you feel about it, a free society doesn't ban books. A free society does not do that. Now, alongside, alongside the analytical essays in the book are poems and monologues and, and, and photographs, and including this photo right here I'd like you to talk about. This is a photo. Who is this in this photograph right here? This is uh, my father, Milton Hanna, uh, who was born. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and how does his story, <laughs> how does his story fit into your larger story? Yes, uh, it's, it's sort of emotional to see him in this way. My, my father was born on a sharecropping farm on a cotton plantation in Greenwood, Mississippi, in 1945, when black people had no uh, rights of citizenship in that state. And he certainly couldn't have imagined one day that he would be the first image you see in a book like this. Um, but my father, I opened the democracy essay, which really argues that black Americans have been the greatest democratizing force in the history of the United States. And I opened with my father, a veteran, um, who loved his country, who served his country, and who flew this gigantic American flag in our yard. Um, and the essay really grapples with how I uh, came to understand why a man who was born into a country that would not treat him as an equal citizen because he was black, how he could have that much love for country. And what he really exhibited uh, was the highest calling of patriotism, which is to, to see the way your country is failing, to see the hypocrisy of your country, to see the way your country's not living up to its highest ideals, but still believing that your country can become uh, the thing that we all dream it to be. Um, and that's what my father really stands for in this book. Well, Nicole, thank you so much thank for being so here. Thank you. The book, The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story, is available now. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to the Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives.